0: No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the end of the world. Close to the end of my voice, <laughs> but it's still here. What has happened? Why are you losing your voice? I think two things. One, the weather is changing. Ah, uh, okay. And there's something just allergies-wise. The other thing is the way that we're having to record this this semester is that I teach back to back, so I teach at ten thirty. And then I teach at noon and then we record at one 30 and I've just been talking for four hours straight already. Okay. And so I think I, it just, it weakens me. You're emptied.
1: Which You're, the, the shouldn't tank is empty.
0: Yeah. I just, I, I don't think I have a strong voice to begin with. That's the problem. Hmm. I, I trust you.
1: I mean, I've been listening to your voice for long enough now. <laughs> I've, I've learned to learn to build up a lot of trust in, in what you have to say. So that's a good thing.
0: How's, how, you're teaching a large lecture class. I
1: am, yeah. I'm teaching, uh, it's what we call intro to media here, and it's uh, first year students primarily, but there's a, a healthy mixture. 174, I think, students and my closest friends, and uh, they all hate me right now because they're about to take a test. <laughs> so, um, but... Uh, But anyway, it's it's always what I find interesting about teaching this class is that there's this feedback loop because, you know, I think one of the reasons that those of us who are teachers end up teaching is because we like learning, right? And just because we're teaching doesn't mean we stop learning. So we're usually surrounded by students who can, like, kind of teach us new things about their perspectives on the world. Yeah. So that that and that always makes it very exciting because I don't necessarily know what's going to become significant yeah. you know, during the semester, and then the world usually fills in the gaps. Weird things happen that you
0: have to talk about. And, what's been the latest thing that have that's came up in class?
1: Um. Well, uh, there part of it. I think one thing that I will be talking about soon is the difficulty of recognizing the difference between something that is politically necessary and something that is necessary as a question of law, Mm. um, which has to do with the whole thing we don't necessarily want to go into that's happening at the level of federal government. But, you know, what what, what are people actually responsible to do and what are the advantages and disadvantages of turning it into a political question? I think that's a good way of framing it. Yeah. Because I think it's just, you know, sometimes you're responsible for doing something, but um, but, you know, other people may characterize that just simply as a political thing sure. rather than a real thing that has to happen. Yeah.
0: So the latest thing that we've talked about in my intro to ad class is because um, I do a, a lecture on uh, regulation and advertising and focus a lot on alcohol and tobacco. And the new the major issue is look, looking at regulation is juuling jewels yes e-cigarettes mm-hmm. uh, and i have to be honest it, i had to do like a lot of research to like fully understand um what the product was and why it's so, been so successful and how successful it's been particularly in high schools mm-hmm. and on social media uh and it's really really interesting i had no idea it's a,
1: it's a it's a really big industry huge it kind of grew out of nothing yeah and it's monstrous and, you know, arguably it's really dependent on uh, fairly young people for its existence. So it's it's created a really kind of big cultural problem. Yeah, You know, as much as uh, uh, in the state of Oklahoma, you know, we had uh, medical marijuana pass through. And so there is now this burgeoning marijuana industry going on in the state now, too which is interesting. It's like every piece of empty real estate that at some point in the past was a failed gas station or a failed convenience store is now a place like where a you can marijuana restaurant. <laughs> get your dope. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So how did the, so, so how did
0: the discussion about jewel go in class? I think it went well. I mean, the way that I framed it was, um, mm-hmm. you know, asking the larger question of Did did is there any correlation between advertising and uh, extended use of tobacco over time? Mm -hmm. And what's that discussion been of? And then how much can we learn from that to apply it to Juul as well? Mm -hmm. Which I think there's actually different answers. Um, I do I think that advertising had less of a impact on tobacco than it did. On jeweling mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't know how, to the extent of which advertising has had a major impact on Juul's. Um, <clears throat> a lot of its popularity has grown through like users on social media and influencers, you know, showing off the product. It's a very like cool product. It's Apple-esque. It's a, you know, recharge it through USB. Replace the pods with all the cool flavors they've got, like mango and orange and blueberry and stuff like that. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know all the flavors, <laughs> but they are obviously more appealing than tobacco flavors. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a super sleek, you know, product that you can, you can hide. It's very discreet. Um, it's a but it's, it's, it's really interesting. And you know, so I I, you I, I am, I'm interested in, is it going to eventually be, we'll blame, we'll blame advertising because we always do, <laughs> but I really think it's a question of, um, because it's a product of Silicon Valley you know, it was invented by two Stanford grads, just like just all like, the other exciting right, stuff, exactly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's like this, it's a, it's a bare question of, of what, uh, what the technology industry is doing when they, they just invent the coolest, sleekest, uh, well-priced products. And don't know that accidentally, you know, they can create these catastrophes.
1: Right. Yeah. To give people the ability to actually damage themselves pretty severely, as right. it turns out. But but some of that, I guess, has to do with the sort of like legal, illegal boundary. You know, there, there's an interesting kind of semi-related question we were talking about in class. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about it. Because in the in the world of advertising now, when we do things online, ads pop up. And then there's a countdown and then there's a skip ad button. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so we were talking about short attention spans and the fact that advertising has gotten to be kind of micro, right? Right. And there are ads that are just, you know, six seconds long and um, some are just six seconds and some are you have six seconds to stop somebody from hitting the skip ad button. Right. So in class,
0: do you talk about that, about the challenge that that presents to, you know, the industry? I, I actually have a different opinion. Mm-hmm. I think some of the, uh, pre-rule advertisement that takes place on YouTube, some of the most creative stuff that's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are the stuff that is like a six second ad and there's other stuff that's like three minutes long, you know? And it's, it's, just, it's a lot more interesting of mm-hmm. material than what do you see in like a 30 second commercial television spot. Yeah. Uh, and it can, you know, you get like what kind of an example of that are you thinking of? Uh, so like one, one company that's in really well on digital advertising is dollar shave club. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's a subscription based razor uh targeted at men uh and um they've just done some really cool advertising that's you know more in the 90 second to 2 minute length uh that i think you know that that people and when you think about ads going viral uh specifically digitally their stuff's pretty interesting mm-hmm. so so yeah so i, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting medium for advertising where you can do some really cool
1: stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, one of the things when we were talking about it, I was also thinking about these uh, ads that are by and large, the ones that I've seen are from Thailand mm. and they're like three minute they're yeah. miniature movies. Right. Um, like there's one called unsung hero. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're, they're just brilliant. Um, I think. Yeah, um, And they're, I think what they're interested because they're three times the length of what exactly. used to be commercial length, which isn't anymore because 30 seconds is kind of the default now for right. television. Um, but the stories are really beautifully told. It turns out they're for an insurance company. Yeah. You know? And there's really no direct correlation necessarily, but it's really effective, I think, in terms of
0: you know how you think about what that output means for the company. I, I believe I – th- I think we're thinking of the same company. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a – I need to look it up just to make sure that I'm not – mixing up things but i believe there's a thai insurance commercial called mom is always right oh i don't know if i've seen that one. Oh my gosh it's uh it's so moving yeah there's a there there's a
1: bunch of these there's another one called ripple that has to do with kind of a paying it forward thing yeah um but i think i think you're right i mean i think where we have like kind of the micro ads at the same time the possibility of doing something kind of on a larger canvas exists too yeah um uh, because it's still within that, I guess, what you'd call the online sweet spot. How long can you have somebody consume a piece of video before they'll, you know, go on to something
0: else? Yeah. So I think it's interesting. And I I, I recognize that I'm not the, I mean, when I go onto YouTube, I don't go on and just consume YouTube content.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I go on to watch a video, right? right. And then I probably leave that that I will leave the platform as soon as I'm, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, you know, for people who watch, who subscribe to specific YouTube channels and like, that's the media they consume. Right. Uh, I think the advertising can be really effective on there. Cause they're just letting it roll in the background in the same way. We, we, you know, let the television mm-hmm. keep the television on during the daytime or whatever. So. Yeah. You know,
1: part of it is also, I think, uh, you know, teaching from a media literacy perspective is making people aware of how advertising works on them, how it massages them into, you know, taking an action, which is, you know, kind of an interesting thing, too, that people need to think about when they're, of course, consuming all this material through whatever means they're doing it. Now, you had mentioned earlier that uh, you're you're, uh, dealing with a video delivery conundrum. With Apple Plus, yeah. So Apple what's, TV what's, Plus. Apple
0: TV Plus. So tell me what this conundrum is you're well, dealing with. Well, I'm trying to understand it. Um, I'm just I'm, I'm interested in this. So we've been hearing for a little bit that Apple was going to put out a a streaming uh, content platform, right? That had been talked about as potentially rivaling Netflix and Hulu and everything like that, right? And so it's been there's been rumors for years of like a literal Apple TV right that has Apple content built into it and that's never really come to be although we have like the the what's called the Apple TV which is a device that allows you to uh download certain apps it's like a you know uh a, a, and um airplay to it and stuff like that but this mm-hmm. is not it this is Apple TV plus which is a subscription service totally right. confusing but basically, what they're going to be doing is that for for a monthly fee, which it sounds like is pretty reasonably priced, I think that's that said four ninety nine yeah, a month after a trial, you get access to Apple TV exclusive content. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be like Netflix and Hulu in the fact that they're not going to license content from other content providers. Mm-hmm. It's going to be Apple only content, and that is really interesting to me less so now where i was intrigued on like the platform and the service and what apple was going to provide now just thinking of apple as a content creator right which it never has been Mm -hmm. uh, but is uh, now wanting to enter that game i think it's really interesting i guess like the best the only other equivalent to this is like amazon deciding they want to be a content creator but -hmm. they also sell third-party content so
1: Right. Well, also Netflix having originally started out as a DVD distribution company and becoming a a content producer. Yeah, it looks like and I remember hearing a story last week about the Oprah's book club that's going to be part of this because it's all in. Yeah. And they're doing the new Townhousie Coates book. There's a morning show. Um, there's a couple of dramas. There's a couple of comedies that they have lined up. There's a children's show called Helpsters mm. that looks like it's got scary puppets you oh, know, wow. in the scary puppet land. Uh, and then, you know, it looks like they're um, all over the place. There's a they're doing a Snoopy in space. Dang! <laughs> so this is going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting um you know, pile of, of content and to see if they're, cause my, my guess is from everything that I've heard and seen about it, they're trying to be kind of like HBO. Right. Right. Uh, which is sort of like, you don't necessarily have a brand identity per se. Right. Your brand is whatever collection of things people land on that kind of come together. And so do you, what do, what do you think is that, do you think they have a good chance of finding an
0: audience for what they're doing?
1: I'm I sure they're it. investing really heavily in the content creation
0: side. Yeah. Um, so. you have to imagine they'll hit something. Mm-hmm. There'll be some show that's some level of Stranger Things or Game of Thrones that it makes you want the service. Yeah, but how do you get people to long, like, to commit long term to the platform? I don't know how to do that. Right.
1: Yeah, and I mean, one of the it's kind of an interesting advantage because we are now um, we are now in the a la carte world. To some right. extent, right? Um so uh, and and content availability keeps shifting. Um so something will be on Netflix and then be gone because somebody else has picked it up. Yeah. I think NBC is doing something to kind of combine a bunch of material to, you know, maybe do something a little bit different. But
0: uh I think what's interesting is that Apple Apple created this world and then it's it's been destroyed in that like they created the you no longer have to buy the, the the album. You can just buy the track, right? right. Yeah. You can just buy the the one thing for ninety nine cents, uh, and then that model has been uh, essentially obliterated by streaming subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Both Apple Music and Spotify right. have. Have re- have re- replaced that as well, and I'm interested in to what extent. Hey, this, they, but they're not selling third party content. I was mm-hmm. gonna say, I wonder at what extent they're they're just wanting to have a subscription service mm-hmm. that uh, that allows them to to move into that space of subscription rather than buying movies or television mm-hmm. shows a la carte right. from the iTunes Store yeah. to a streaming. But that's it's not what they're doing. Well, that's so a,
1: yeah. Th- I mean, it's also there's that there, there's that world underneath that which is that your in a position where you don't own your media, right? Yeah, You're renting it for a single use. And even though that single use produces a copy, which it of necessity has to do as a digital thing, most technology is not set up to actually start, you know, collecting that material. So it is, in many ways, it is kind of like, you know, um, it's it's not it's not the accumulation, the pile of stuff, right? Yeah, The, the buying of DVDs and CDs and
0: albums and which, everything man, I've, else. I've got... Baskets of CDs and DVDs I don't know what to do with. And I can't get myself to get rid of them.
1: Yeah, I have that problem, too. And it's, you know, it's because I think in the in the process of accumulating it, I mean, there's a lot of fun involved in, right. you know, gathering all that material together. So anyway, so, um, yeah, so we'll in, it's supposed to start November 1st. So I guess we'll all know. We'll know soon. Yeah. We'll know a month from now. This is because we're recording this on October 1st. And uh, as, as you could probably guess, October is in some ways the most important month of the year. Oh because right. it's when all the big holiday is happens. Is it Texas?
0: <laughs> yeah. No, Football? Not, no. Oh, oh no, I'm sorry oh, to no, say no, 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 no. it is
1: partially the beginning of the hockey season. Base- but— <laughs> baseball playoffs. <laughs> right. No, I, is that still a sport? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just not not I, I just don't, you know. If it's not on ICO. NBA's I don't care. starting yeah. soon too. It's all gonna it, but the uh, but the other thing is of course the Halloween part. And that's the part that uh gets me excited about the threats that to, to the world that we exist in. And um, and the kind of storytelling that happens. I was actually beat by a neighbor this year in terms of decorating. Oh wow! It was a, it was a, it was a horrible, humiliating experience. That these people two houses away put a light up pumpkin on their front porch like three weeks ago. It was like it was like not too long after Labor Day, and they're like already and they've got you know kind of something on the mailbox too. And I'm like, so I had to go out and buy a pumpkin and just plop it down on my front porch. Yeah. I but I mention all this to say that uh, I'm in the process of uh reading a book that i have to do a review of um and i wanted to talk about it a little bit because i thought it was really interesting it's an edited collection of essays called slender man is um, slender man is coming creepy pasta and contemporary legends on the internet and it's edited by trevor blank and lynn mcneil and uh, it's Utah State University Press has published it. Um, it's it's really new and it has for now for those of you are you are you familiar with Slender Man? Yes. It's with the legend and yeah. all of that, right? Yeah, give it a thirty second. The thirty intro. second version is it um, it started um, on a website that basically was a contest to come up with disturbing images and somebody put up two pictures, two black and white pictures, which communicated the disturbing presence of this threat, this guy this tall thing that had maybe tentacles for arms but maybe not but was dressed in a business suit and had no facial features and that was essentially slender man and in both of these pictures he's juxtaposed against groups of children so the you know so so this is this then eventually becomes a a video series called marble hornets which um produced Many, many, many episodes uh, about you know that were the, the framing of it was that there was a, a two friends, one of whom was a filmmaker, student filmmaker, and his friend, and the student filmmaker basically fled uh, unaccountably for some reason and gave all the tapes of what he'd been doing to the this other person, and so the other person is basically the series is this other person beginning to go through the tapes to see what happened, and, and there it, was like two girls who. Well, so, yeah. So yeah, eventually, yeah. right. So in the series, the you know, Slender Man becomes this presence that is kind of technological and kind of mythic in feeling and everything like that. Um, and then that reproduces into a couple of other web series, uh, a video game that a lot of people played. There was a low-tech version of it. And yeah, and it eventually becomes something that it permeated into the culture of young people. It wasn't really something that you know, that older people were paying attention to and permeating to the point where eventually there were at least three cases of young people who did something really horrible because they thought it would, and, you know, Slender Man would like them more. There were two girls in Wisconsin who stabbed a friend 14 times and left her for dead, but she actually survived. And as it turned out, these girls were, thought that what they were doing, they were doing for Slender Man. So... Um, what's interesting about this book and the way that they talk about it, because it's kind of like a merging of digital culture and folklore, which is a really yeah. interesting combination because um, because, the you know, you could there are digital versions of things that have existed in previous folklore and then, you know, have been reproduced and redone and remade over and over again into the present. This was something where it was, you know. Created at a particular recent historical point, but then the people who were involved in the culture of it felt compelled to go back and make things that gave it a history. Yeah. So, um, and in folklore, they use the term ascension to describe this, which is something that moves from being a sign to being in reality in some way. Which could be anything from the actual production of a TV series like Marble Hornets, you know, to people who were putting video online practical jokes of using a Slender Man kind of thing to scare a friend or something like that. Um, But it's really fascinating that there were people going back and basically forging wood cuttings from the Hmm. 18th century that had Slender Man in them uh, or, you know, creating historical documents that would seem to verify the existence of this legend. The people who are involved in it, you know they know it's made up, but it's it's the idea of thinking it might not be right This is kind of how urban legends work, where you heard a story and you didn't it didn't really sound true, but it just had enough plausibility for it to be you know unnerving and uh, and that whole kind of urban legend tradition, so it's kind of building on that too um, which I think is really interesting because these are times where belief in things is really complicated,
0: yeah, you know. So, and, and there's a, a strong desire to attach yourself to something, right? Like like, like there, we, we want to inherently believe in something. We do. Well, and I think we also like to be a, a, you know, when we
1: find a piece of popular culture, like not just entertaining, but. You know, intellectually engaging, then getting involved in fan communities right. right becomes kind of a really interesting thing. One of the things that this book, this collection, Slender Man is Coming, talks about is something called legend tripping, which is where people will actually take the idea of a legend and go as if that's a real place, hmm. which could be anything from... You know, Harry Potter tours happening in London where you go to locations where things were shot or, you know, the or, or, you know, in Oxford, there's Inspector Morse tours and, and things like that. Um, to going to a place like Burkittsville, Maryland because that's supposedly where the Blair Witch was, right? Even though, again, the Blair Witch was a thing that was made up and then a history was created behind it, um, but it produced this kind of legend-tripping activity. Yeah. It's fairly close to kind of people who do kind of, you know, paranormal exploration and things like
0: that. So back to my tobacco mm-hmm. advertising lecture. Yes. I talk a lot about this with Marlboro and Marlboro Country. Mm-hmm. Right? There was a the big advertisement, like you could go see Marlboro Country it was a, a big promotion they would do where you would, you know, send in your, as you buy a pack and that would give you like a point that you could, that you could use, but you could sign up to get raffled into these, these adventures where, I mean, it was originally marketed towards Europeans of like mm-hmm. go to the American West and see what it's like to be an American cowboy and, you know, live in this non existent space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and get to experience it like a like a real true cowboy, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, westerns as a genre were they had
1: this interesting expansion of of what you know the West was, sure. right? To so, to where it became like much longer and larger than yeah. it actually was historically, but but it had some importance as kind of a mythic form that right. people wanted to understand their culture, kind of tied into it, and it actually was. It, there's an interesting kind of subcategory in, in Germany for a period of time in the, I think from the 60s till the early 80s there, uh, were, there were a bunch of films made that were actually taking uh, novels by a guy named Carl May and making westerns out of them that were shot in Germany. Wow. <laughs> so they had this whole kind of like western subgenre, and I know from friends that Native Americans actually end up being kind of iconically used in a lot of European countries too. Yeah. Um, like, uh, you know, in... in uh, in the old Yugoslavia, there's a lot of interest in Native American imagery and representations. Yeah, so it's interesting how portable they are.
0: Back to your book, I wonder: Are there? Does the book go into? Is it? Does it come at it from perspective of how? Here's how you look out for something like this, like a you know, like a little. Uh, Dustbuster turning into a tornado, like this, you know, this becoming a major ordeal, like a Slender Man. Like, is it something that you can foresee out in front, or does the book talk about like here's how we we stop it, or does it is it just more of a here's the history of this? Kind it's of
1: more, stuff? yeah, it's more of a history because it's interested in what gives something. I mean, if you think of like a folk tale, what gives it its um, prominence in culture? Yeah, you know, what is it? What is it that makes us? reproduce the same stories over and over again, you know, to our kids and in Disney films and all of these different variations, I and, see. you know, thinking about what these mean. I mean, one historical link is, you know, because of Slender Man being associated with children, there's this idea that he's kind of like a Pied Piper character. Yeah. right? Um, so there, there are folk tales that would be kind of the foundations for that. So, so I think the book is more interested in how these things develop on the ground um, and trying to, and then of course trying to understand what is it that accounts for the popularity of it. I, it's you know whether you can predict that. That's always, I think, a very difficult. You know, yeah. it's like, um, you know, thinking about what's going to be successful based on past practice. You know, yeah. Um, but that's not necessarily a guarantee. You know, that 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 you know, doing a sequel or doing a you know a rebooting or something like that is
0: not going to be as guaranteed successful as the original was. You know, necessarily. This is slightly off topic, but whatever happened to uh, storming Area Fifty One? That was like a thing, right, at one point. Oh, you mean like actually going there? Yeah, like they like they were going to set a date and people were going to storm Area. Did that ever happen? I don't. You know, I don't
1: know. Uh, area Fifty One is such a um, interesting piece of you know, kind of the 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 myth of the UFO tradition,
0: <clears throat>
1: like this place where. Um, um, all of this uh, like conspiracy-related activity was, you know, supposedly taking place. But I don't, yeah, I don't. That I'm not as much familiar with. Uh, Looks like the Travel Channel had some kind of a role in it too.
0: Looks like it happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fake, uh, storm area fifty-one event on Facebook arbitrarily setting a date for September twentieth. Huh. Okay. More than two million people RSVP'd.
1: Yeah, um it's yeah. yeah it's interesting. I, I had a friend also uh uh who was attending something that is apparently held in the desert that is kind of like uh, Mad Max brought to life. Mm. <laughs> it's like you it, it, kind of like with Burning Man, you yeah. know, except it's this is something that's a little bit more specifically constructed for people who are interested in kind of a po- post apocalyptic you know kind of environment including the cars and the the steampunk outfits and all of that sort of thing that that you know that people do so i i mean i think it's really interesting how people latch on to a particular you know popular culture context like that and then kind of want to be inside of it you know you can even though it sounds silly that somebody would go to Burkittsville, maryland to try to find a historical location for something that was made up in 1999 um but you know you can kind of also see how engaging it is, right? How it becomes kind of really important to people um, in the same way that sports teams become a way that people construct their identities, right? When we were, you know, we had this, when we were first looking at houses around the University of Oklahoma uh, here where we teach, it was amazing how many houses had shrines in them to OU football, Mm -hmm. right? So this was, I mean this was a real you know physical manifestation with helmets and you know uh glass cases and everything like that. So I mean, I think there's I mean I think there's a real human interest in getting involved in something even though when push comes to shove you know it's all made up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean being a fan of a home team is all uh, a a a fabrication right
0: it's- well, so i've heard this argument uh be made before by a guy named Clayton Christensen. Are you familiar with him he, like, he wrote the uh disrupting innovation theory mm-hmm. essentially he's a he's a big Harvard business professor um uh, but he has a a theory that's called the jobs to be done theory mm-hmm. and basically it's just like what is the job that that thing exists to do? Um, and he he the like the way he tells the story, uh, or way he introduces it, is he talks about he was doing some consultant for a large fast food company, he doesn't say exactly who it was, but I assume it was like McDonald's or Burger King or something mm-hmm. like that. But they were they were trying to um sell more milkshakes. Uh-huh. And so he was they were they were doing all these kind of things to try to figure out how they could. Um and what they what he ended up finding out was the majority of milkshakes were being sold one through the drive thru mm-hmm. and two like before nine AM. Uh-huh. And uh the like the main reason like like people Could you do that? Do, could you drink a milkshake at like eight o'clock in the morning? I've never done it, but I mean this is apparently Sounds terrifying. <laughs> well, so what people were saying was, um, you know, they wanted something coffee like they're commuting right coffee is going to sm- spill right they want something that's got a little bit of sweetness to it mm-hmm. a donuts sticky um <laughs> and it in it, and, and a milkshake fits in your cup holder like you have a place to set it down and it's so like like basically his point was like there's a job to be done people want some kind of sustenance and this you know a milkshake's probably not the best product for it but it's it's fulfilling the job oh, okay and he's made this sim similar analogy to he I mean he's also the one who says that we're only going to have like ten universities you know and and higher ed's going to kind of crumble and this is where like we start to we 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 divulge on, on we don't agree on a lot of, this of things but his job to be done for white education exists uh which I think has some merit is a similar one in which he says that you know it, education, people want to be engaged in it. Um, but, you know, for one reason they want to have friends and it's a place to do that and they want to be successful. And mm-hmm. it's a, it's sort of that it's a bridge for success for a lot of people, but at the point that anything else can give them that like a gang, you know, or mm-hmm. some kind of social, uh, society, uh, you know, they might not need something like h- higher education to be that place that introduces them to new people that allows them to thrive and, you know, in, in their, you know if their economy doesn't doesn't need uh yeah an educated uh society like stuff like that like that's where he can see higher ed mm-hmm. being being really concerning as once those two things are f- fulfilled by other places mm-hmm. anyways it's a, it's an interesting thought yeah the milkshake story is a little bit better but <laughs> well yeah you mean better than the demise
1: of higher education right, as right we right know exactly. it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I think you know there have been some things like uh, I don't know if you think of sort of the whole like MOOC movement, yeah, as as kind of something that came and went, or whether it's still something that has some potential. Um, there was a great story in uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education about the experiments in um, online right. large scale delivery at the University of Texas at Austin, yeah, and it came and went. Yeah, know, they made a massive investment, and they were just never able to accumulate the kind of uh, credibility or buy-in to make the program sustainable.
0: Yeah, I think what's what's really sad about what happened specifically at UT is a lot of a lot of universities that were originally doing MOOC work were able to eventually spin those shops into things that looked at things like academic innovation mm-hmm. uh, and were sort of test kitchens for a lot of a lot of bigger ideas than just. Uh, video-driven courses that you know allowed for anybody to enroll in them. Which I mean, even calling them courses was a little bit loose because they mm-hmm. didn't really have a lot of the, the rigor mm-hmm. that you'd see in a college-level course. But um, a lot of universities use that as an opportunity for the first time investing in things like academic technology or instructional support. Um, and I think it's really what what what's driven is uh, a much you know, before when we were talking about online higher ed in 2010, I mean, we were mostly talking about university Phoenix, like it it meant a for-profit type product. Right. And now what you're seeing is universities are smartly realizing that you can't, you know, technology exists that allows you to educate, uh, to really in anyone, you don't have to, you know, there's, I mean, I, I've said this before, but I don't see anywhere on our mission statement that says that, you know, we will do our duties as long as someone is physically here in Norman, Oklahoma. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't think that's uh that should be a limiting factor. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting, but you're right. The sad thing about UT is they, 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 they put a lot of money into something and then they just shut it down. Yeah. Like, where does the lessons learned from that? You know, I mean, yeah. it, and they had some really interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. Not all of them were interesting, but things like a $10,000 degree, you right. know, I think is a really, a really compelling idea mm-hmm. that you never really saw come out, come out of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that the, the, the cultural discussion about higher education in general is, is sometimes, complicated by you know the politics of financing and the relationship between the public and the private Mm -hmm. and um you know the the the, we've still inherited kind of an elitist system and have Mm -hmm. tried to democratize it um to greater and lesser degrees of success um you know i'm i'm actually a big fan of like some very small tweaks like gap years Mm -hmm. like i think that a lot of People who are going into higher education, people who graduate from high school and start college, don't really know why they're doing what they're doing. It was just sort of like the next thing you're supposed to do. And so, you know, being given some time to maybe think about and explore and grow up a little bit and whatever would actually make them better participants in higher education. And, you know, they would feel like it was a more worthwhile thing on the other end. Yeah. But you know, on the other hand, the debt crisis is very real for a lot of people, and um, and I think that there's the other. I think and I think we've touched on this on previous episodes a little bit. There is a crisis in um, uh, mental health. That is not it's it's not because all of a sudden there's a lot of people who have much more serious problems. It's just that those problems aren't being painted over and ignored, which is, I think, what we did for a long time. And now we have the possibility of being able to engage with them as a culture. So it's just a question of are we ready to invest in the are we ready to invest in people who are struggling or do we just want to let them drift off and, and, you know. Whatever happens to people, they fail or they're marginalized or they're cared for by someone else, um, as opposed to thinking about this as kind of a large cultural opportunity to take responsibility for people who are facing different kind of challenges you yeah. know, instead of just calling them snowflakes or, you right. know, uh, otherwise disregarding, you know, some some of the stuff they're facing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, since we did a little bit of a serious turn, I do want to talk about. Uh, a television program, if that's okay. Let's do it. Um, There's a program that's available on Netflix right now called unbelievable. And it is, um, I, I watched it and it's, it's an amazingly compelling piece of television. It's, it's fairly serious in the sense that, and this is kind of, this would fall under the trigger warning idea, it's a fairly serious examination of what happens following a sexual assault. Mm. Um, everything, and it's all based on a true case of some sexual assaults that took place in Washington and Colorado between 2008 and 2011. And um, there there are a number of reasons why I think it's really worth having a look at, but it is, you know, fairly confrontational about sexual assault. So just as an idea of, you know, it's something that you have to go in thinking this is going to deal with this fairly seriously. It's not graphic and it absolutely doesn't, you know, doesn't do anything to make it. um, uh, It's not, it's not fun to watch. It's very, it's a, I found it to be very upsetting because that I, because one of the things that the series does is identify these clear gender roles that still exist in this whole world. Um, because it's all built up around a, a, a real historical case that was originally our ProPublica article from 2015 called "An Unbelievable Story of Rape" by Ken Armstrong and T. Christian Miller, um, and so it's been turned into this Netflix series, and it really does some, some amazing things um, in conjunction with how normal police procedural television works. It has, you know, clearly discriminates between male cops and female cops, and it has a couple of very prominent women cops who um, detectives um, who are just critical to uh, this whole question of how are people treated when they're victims of sexual assault. Uh, how do people judge their veracity to decide whether what they're doing is telling the truth or not? Particularly people who, you know, otherwise maybe have reasons why you might doubt what they would have to say, and you know whether that's something that the, the you know, that in in this case ends up being something that uh, ends up just causing real serious problems for uh, victims, and you know present the problem because of the disconnection between different police organizations of like actually getting together and finding out that they have a much larger case than they think on their hands. So it is, it's very serious. Um, but it's also very engaging. Uh, Toni Collette is in it and she's fantastic in everything. She's just a really, really talented actor, but the whole cast is very good. And there are some pieces on Vulture and, uh, Insider that you can find that talk about the relationship between the, the, the television production and the, and the real case and the real cops that were involved in things like that. But it really, I thought was a really compelling piece of television. It was really well written um, and very engaging. I think it's a six part series. Hmm. Um, and again, given the caveat that it does, you know, deal with sexual assault in a fairly serious way. I think it has a lot to say about, uh, about uh, where we are now in terms of gender and crime. Interesting.
0: Yeah. So Hey, you were mentioning before we got here about the the, you saw a list for the top grossing movies this year so far.
1: Yes. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So what 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 would be your what would be your general sense of what what kind of things you think would be on this list? Is that a fair question? Uh a Marvel movie? Okay, well the number one Top grossing film so far uh, in 2019 is Avengers Endgame. Yeah, of course. So, right.
0: Like top grossing ever. So. Yes.
1: International gross of $2.8 billion, $858 yeah. million domestic. So, yeah, big thing, right? But we
0: haven't had a Star Wars movie yet.
1: No. Uh, number two is The Lion King. Okay. Um, domestic gross of $350 million, international $1.6 billion. Um, and then Toy Story 4. All Disney so All, far. Yeah. Uh, and then Captain Marvel. Yeah. Which actually I had to, I thought I had heard from people that it bombed, but it did really well. So there's that. Spider-Man Far From Home is number five. Okay, that's the first non-Disney Yeah. One. Uh, Aladdin. Okay, so we're, we're back, back, to, back, yeah, back, back in the lap of Disney at number six. Seven, and this is the one that sticks out on this list, is Us, the Jordan mm. Peele's second film um had a budget of 20 million dollars it made 255 million international 175 million domestic so it was and and i think he he is now gotten on. I have a small list in my head of people who should be allowed to make any movie they want for the rest of the time they're alive and people should. And even if they don't do well, just keep letting them make movies because they're just, they have the gift. And Jordan Peel, particularly for horror fans, but I mean, just for storytelling in general and for dealing with issues of identity is just a genius. You know, he's just doing amazing work and, you know, he's, and, and so I'm sure he's going to be a presence for a long time. So, number eight, one of my favorites, John Wick, chapter three, Mm. Parabellum, because John Wick, you know, it's a thing. Uh, Number nine, Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. Wow. (laughs) And number 10, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. There you go. So, those are the top grossing films so far of 2019. A lot of them are, you know, sequels, derivatives, remakes, reboots, stuff like that, turning something from an animated film into a non-animated film or from a one kind of animated film into another yeah. kind
0: of animated film. Well, Disney's, I mean, they've, they've sort of gone whole hog on this tentpole strategy that we're going to release only a handful of films a year, but they're going to be these gigantic blockbusters. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I I've read the formula before, and, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's like one Marvel movie that's continuing... Uh, The universe, one Marvel movie that's introducing a new character, Mm -hmm. uh, a Star Wars film, a uh, Pixar movie, an animated film, a one of these live action. So the the Lion King falls into that live action category. Mm -hmm. And then maybe if we're lucky, we'll do like one or two that are like kind of appeasing a specific director. Right. You know, like... uh, uh like the latest uh like Mary Poppins or something like that, you know, Return of Mary Poppins. But like not not a there's not a ton I guess that even I don't know what, what that considers, but but I mean they're only released in six or seven movies and and they're all just crowding to the mm-hmm. top of this these lists. Yeah. I you I mean I think the other thing that's interesting is that
1: you have to see all this juxtaposed over a very a much more complex media environment, and this is kind of an allusion to what we were talking about before with Apple TV+, and Netflix reforming itself, Hulu reforming itself, and all these other subsidiary ways of getting content, Um, it's a very fragmented environment, too. So... Thinking about things like the domestic growth of a particular film for a particular industry makes sense, but um, my guess is that there's so much there. You know, I was looking in 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 uh, 2018, there were like 487 scripted television series hmm. in in that were being made, <clears throat> and you see the curve on that over time, and it's been like going up. My guess is that in 2019 it'll be. Well over five hundred, no. possibly approaching six
0: hundred. One of the things that's makes it hard to compare is like Netflix doesn't release any kind of data right. on anything. Yes. So we don't we have no we have no way of knowing how to judge those yeah. in yeah. context with anything else. It's kind of funny too, because that
1: used to be very publicly known in you know, sort of in the network television era. Yeah all that information was pretty easily publicly available and there was no reason to keep a variety. It makes
0: sense why it's not right. Because the, the the reason for it to be publicly available is because you need to sell advertisers on it. Mm -hmm. And when Netflix is pure subscription based, there's no advertisers. Uh, there's, quote no advertisers right mm-hmm. you know
1: but it kind of but, raises the question whenever you're seeing any piece of information about a piece of media um that there is no legal reason how do they you value would, it or, well yeah. how do you value it or why let it out like right. if you're if you're right. going to make and release films and right. you know that you're going to release 10 films and one's going to make a lot of money and nine are going right. to not right right why tell anyone what anything is making yeah you know the main reason is because then it, you know the the kind of the snowball value right if it if if it's very popular then even more people will go see it yeah but uh yeah it's an odd thing to have absolutely no idea <laughs> right how things are like you know i don't know what the viewership figures are on unbelievable you right. know um it it was released fairly quietly but just made a big impact because people noticed it and they've done other kinds of strange rollouts of things that you know have sometimes successful sometimes bombed entirely so It's um, interesting how those patterns work over time. But yeah, I think there's just going to be a continual increase in the amount of this material. And I think that the amount of material is going to be more global. I think we're going to have access to more because this count that I gave you, the 487 series in uh, 2017, um, that was um, excluding um, daytime dramas, one episode specials, non-English dub programs, children's programs, and short form content. So that's just Mm -hmm. scripted TV series. And like I said... My guess is that we're easily, you know, getting close to 600 because there are just so many platforms and they don't need a massive audience. They just need a niche right. audience who wants to be part of it. Yeah. So Good stuff. All right. Okay. Thanks again. Yep. Good to talk to you, Adam. Take care.